The Honorable, the judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit is now in session. All persons having business before this honorable court may now draw near and they will be heard. God save the United States and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. We have a um, fairly full docket this morning, so we'll get right to work. Uh, Madam Clerk, would you call the first case? Case number 21-2292 from the Western District of Missouri, Anna St. John versus Lisa Jones. All right. Mr. Frank for the appellate. You're muted, Mr. Frank. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Uh, Ted Frank for appellant Anna St. John. Uh, $16 million to Cypre, more than 97% of the class with no cash. Bank America creates a bright line rule that forbids the Cypre distribution here. A Cypre distribution to a third party of unclaimed settlement funds is permissible only when it is not feasible to make further distributions to class members. And refusing more distributions because they're costly and difficult is well, reversible. Wait, there, there's an except on your sentence, right? Yes, Your Honor. Except where? Okay, tell, uh, tell me why you don't fall in the except. Uh, certainly. Uh, refusing more distributions because they're costly and difficult, as what happens in Bank of America, uh, is reversible error. And that's the same error the court made here. Uh, no, counsel, I was referring to, except for an additional distribution would provide a windfall to class members. Uh, what about yes. that one? Well, uh, Bank of America controls there. The, 3%, the under 3% of the class who are claimants are not fully compensated as a matter of law. Uh, the district court committed reversible error in holding that Bank of America, a case about unliquidated damages, did not apply here because the damages were unliquidated. As in Bank of America, uh, it's the allegations of the complaint that control whether a compromise fully compensates class members rather than an adjudication of the strength of those claims. Uh, the uh, bank Mr. Frank, I have, a, I have a question about that aspect of your argument. Are you asserting that, that whatever is alleged as the damage in the complaint, and I think you have some exceptions so long as it's, I don't know, feasible or something like that, that 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 rules and that there's no role for the district court to assess the value of the claim as the court did here? That's correct. And that was exactly what happened in Bank America. Uh, the dissent in Bank America, as you might recall, uh, held, argued that the class members were not undercompensated by what they were played, paid by the claims process. And it did not matter that one could make the assessment that they were not undercompensated. Uh, the measure of the compromise, the measure of the damages is what's alleged in the complaint so long as what's alleged in the complaint is non-frivolous. So, so who then the district court engages in, how does the district court then engage in an analysis to determine whether it's non-frivolous? It seems to me that the district court needs to be um, involved in that process in some fashion. Well, I, I, that's an E2C1 inquiry, right? Whether the amount of the money is uh, fair relative to the strength of the claims. But when you're talking about windfall, the strength of the claims 
you, you don't look at, well, what's the platonic result if we litigated this whole case and what the class members would get. Uh, class members get windfalls all the time by that because defendants settle cases that they could have won, but they settle uh, because of the risk of litigation. And maybe a platonically ideal judge would have adjudicated that as the class gets zero, but it's not a windfall that the parties settled. Uh, he, here Bank America uh, was willing to pay $39 million to uh, resolve these claims and that money belongs to the class. Now maybe Bank America, excuse me, maybe Monsanto regrets that now, uh, but that doesn't make it a windfall. That doesn't mean that third parties get that money instead of the class. And there's a second element too, because we have the 97% of the class that received nothing, and they certainly have been undercompensated uh, relative to the 2% of the class that made claims. And direct distribution. Mr. Mr. Frank, what if what if the two to three percent got one hundred percent return? What would your position be here in, to us today? Uh, if the two to three percent got one hundred percent return, uh, then under Bank America, additional fees to sums to them would be a windfall. Uh, but you would still have the ninety-seven percent of the class where just direct distributions were feasible for at least some of those class members. And that's supported by Rule 23E2C2, which fortifies Bank America, that 2018 amendment, because that requires courts to evaluate the effectiveness of the distribution. And that's an objective standard. So the district court thus committed a second reversible error as a matter of law in holding further distributions to additional class members were not feasible. The question is not whether every class member could be paid, that uh, yes, p class members who paid cash or didn't go to big box stores uh, wouldn't get the same amount as class members who use credit cards and did go to buy big box member scores. But th the, the question is whether some class members can be identified and paid with direct distributions. Counsel, and, this, this is Judge Smith. Was, was there evidence in the record about what the cost would be to pursue additional uh, uh, claimants we presented evidence that this was done for a very low cost in cases with much smaller settlement funds. Uh, specifically with reference to what it would cost to, to do it in this case. Was that in the record? The uh, settling parties had the burden of showing that it was not feasible and they did not put that evidence into the record. Uh, so uh, Mr. Frank, are you, are you referring to the, the argument about sort of the, the reaching out directly to the retailers for um, identification of purchasers? And I think there was some conversation in the hearing about the fact that a lot of these uh, companies don't keep some of this information anymore um, for privacy reasons. Is that the conversation you're talking about that occurred at the uh, hearing? Yes, and it, it, that's just simply falsified by the fact that other settlements do retrieve this information. Uh, you, Walmart has this information, Target has this information, Home Depot has this information, several other retailers do too. And you know, if class actions can do this for small cans, tins of black pepper or glucosamine bottles, they can certainly do it for the much more expensive glyphosate product. Well, uh, counsel, let me let me ask you a very pointed question. I thought that the record in the district court did not have 
detailed information about the availability of the very uh, information you're talking about. Yes, and that's precisely our point. The settling parties failed to meet their burden that this was not feasible. They had the yeah, obligation- Yeah, but don't you have to come forward and show something? I mean, you can't allege it's Martians gonna come and get it or something like that, right? Well, we allege that other class actions do this with much smaller settlement funds and that there is no reason that it could not be done here. And they did not rebut that. Well, uh, did you show it was done? And I'm sorry, pardon my, this is, a, as, as we say, a very honest question. Uh, but but you're saying that that we can find other cases. Did you point them out to us where they were able to go to these kind of big retailers that do a, oh, a tremendous amount of this kind of business and, and get information? Yes, we did. We cited McCormick, we cited Pearson, uh, we cited several other cases that's in our briefing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pearson was a much smaller settlement for a much less prop, for a less popular product, but was still able to identify millions of class members. Uh, McCormick only involved three states. They were able to identify 127,000 class members. Uh, the district court erred in holding that satisfying Rule 23E1 on notice means that Rule 23E2C2 is satisfied. As Virginia holds, Different Rule 23E clauses require different inquiries and are not mere surplusage. And direct distributions would not be duplicative of a claims process when over 97% of the class has, have not made claims. The district court just simply erred there. Even if the Cypre were permissible, this Cypre is impermissible because of the First Amendment problem of compelling class members to support speech they would not agree with. And I, I see that I'm running into my rebuttal time. I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Well, counsel, just one more question, and that has to do with um, where is the district court out of bounds in terms of the requirement of approval under Rule 23? Uh, it's out of bounds under uh, Rule 23E2C2 and under Bank America, which holds that this sort of Cypre is impermissible. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Frank. Ms. Wickland. But Your Honor, I believe that uh, the Attorney General was to argue uh, at this point. Yes, Your Honor. Okay, let me get my let me get my cheat sheet out here and see if I've overlooked something. Pardon me, Your Honor. Okay, now who's arguing for the AG? Katie, Kathleen smith Gall for the state of Montana and the nine other amici states. All right, I see. Uh, Ms. smith Ms. smith Gall, please uh, come to the podium. Great, thank you. And good Virtually. Morning. <laughs> May it please the court. Like I said, my name is Kathleen smith Gall, and I represent the state of Montana and the nine other amici states in support of Ms. St. John. Attorneys general play an important role in the class action settlement process and protect consumers against agreements that are not fair, reasonable, or adequate. While district courts do retain significant discretion in approving these settlement agreements, they must follow rigorous standards when it comes to Cypre distribution. And many have started to caution against the growing reliance on Cypre distribution as a substitute for compensating class members directly. In this case- Counsel, counsel are some of these given to attorney generals? Some of the Cypre going to attorney generals? Your Honor, they, um, we are we're 
support uh, bringing these this uh, argument on behalf of the consumers who who would who would uh, would be subject to the settlement agreement. No, no, mine's, mine's, mine's again a factual question. Uh, Missouri has several statutes, and the attorney general gets funds for certain funds, uh, gets part of settlements for certain funds. Trust me. Now, question for you is. Do some of these Cypres go to attorney generals and their consumer funds, their Missouri protection funds and their uh, other funds? I think I see that, but tell me if that's true or false. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, Your Honor, on, on behalf of all. Okay, all thank you. Proceed. Proceed. Thank you. Um, as, as Mr. Frank argued, the proposed settlement fund here is $39.55 million. And of course, its purpose is to compensate the class members for the purported harm that they suffered. But this, this particular settlement agreement prioritizes the Cypre distribution over compensating these class members directly. Nearly 40% of the settlement goes to non-class member third-party organizations, while, as Mr. Frank said, somewhere between 97 and 98% of the class members receive nothing. Counsel, so, what if what if the court were if 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 the court were to determine that notice was proper, that the Rule 23 um, requirements were met, um, what then? What if, in fact, all of the tw Rule 23 requirements are met and yet you're still left with a 40% leftover bucket of money? Then what is your position about the Cypre? Your Honor, I would point the court's attention back to Bank America because the threshold question is whether Cypre is even appropriate. As the district court noted, there's effectively two options. The, the undistributed funds can either be go to the participating class members as additional compensation or it can go into the side prey and the right and let's and let's assume and let's assume that all of the t's have been crossed and the i's have been dotted in terms of trying to get it to the class members and let's assume that any argument you have under bank america has been resolved and is has been met then what about a 40 percent uh, to Cypre, done everything you can and you still got 40%. What's your position on what that money, where that money can go? Well, it should still, it should still go to the class members because even if all, even if we, um, under the American Law Institute um, 3.07 subsection A, that you have reached no notice and reached out to all feasible class members, um, which the district court uh, found here, then even so, it, the presumption still exists that that, that an undistributed fund must go to the class members. And um, the limitation- What, what of about course, windfalls, counsel? We talked about windfalls. What about the windfall language? That, that is relevant particularly to liquidated damages. And, and Well, counsel, and, does that really matter? We have two cases in, uh, gosh, 97 and 02. Looks to me like we clearly approved Cypre uh, when they were unliquidated. That's Powell and the airline ticket case. Are you familiar with either of our cases that appear to do that? Yes, Your Honor. But again, I would I would point I would point the court to the Caligiuri case, for example. And in that case, um, the uh, district court approved a settlement agreement where the class members were eligible to receive fifty dollars compensation as opposed to the seven dollars to or six dollars to seventeen dollars that they paid in, in in their product. And so the district court does not have to just adopt the expert opinions that fifty percent. Um, compensation is full compensation here. The district court must look beyond the four corners of the settlement agreement and consider the claims that were brought, the, the alleged harms and the damages and the complaint to determine um, whether full compensation full compensation is reached. And, and again, the presumption is that the undistributed funds must go to the class members themselves 
not these third-party uninjured organizations who, again, are not, are not party to this litigation. And I, I see my time is, is almost expired, so I'll simply conclude by, by asking this court to reverse the district court's approval of the settlement agreement. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Ms. Smith-Gall, and please accept my apologies for overlooking your appearance. Thank you. Ms. Wickland. Thank you, Your Honor. Now it's my turn. Petra Renee Wickland, may it please the court, on behalf of the plaintiff Eppley class. So we can't deny that Rule 23E5 grants the Center for Class Action Fairness, acting through its president, the right to bring these arguments on objection. But I would point out that in their zeal to disincentivize class action work, they're bringing arguments that have been used elsewhere and aren't particularly germane to what happened in this case or germane to Chief Judge Phillips' decision. It's very clear that the court <clears throat> understands the ALI factors from its previous questions. And I think if we look at the ALI factors, the 2010 ALI factors as adopted in Bank America, it's pretty clear that they are in fact met here and that Chief Judge Phillips far from holding that Bank America didn't apply, as the objector argued, went through those factors quite carefully. So the third factor is, of course, that the Cypre recipient's interest must reasonably approximate those being pursued by the class. But that was not raised in district court and it's not raised here, so we can assume that's met. So the first of the three ALI factors is <clears throat> that where if the class members can be identified through reasonable effort, you must make distributions directly to them. That did happen here. And in response to Your Honor's question, there was no evidence on record of the cost of going further. But we did have evidence on record of the administrator testifying that we had already used a targeted internet search history that was more likely to identify consumers than what was being speculated by the objector in terms of things that had purportedly happened in other cases. Counsel, uh, uh, please respond to the other point, which was that there are other cases where this has been done and those cases were called to the district court's attention. Absolutely. The district court did address those cases uh, in her footnote explaining why she thought that that would not work here and the fact that through the targeted internet search, we had already achieved 82% reach of class members at an average frequency of more than 2.5 impressions. Therefore, if class members had not made claims, it's more likely that they simply didn't want to make claims. And we were unlikely to get more from third-party subpoenas holding up the settlement than we had already got through the targeted internet search of the administrator. Is, counsel, is but, there some number, the number here in this case is uh, just above 80%, uh, is there some number in, in this area of litigation that's considered kind of sufficient to have, uh, to demonstrate adequate efforts to reach class members with notice? I would think that that number would vary a lot based on the type of claim. If you're talking about something like an athletic club where all of the records are held by the defendant, it's going to be pretty easy to get 100% or near 100%. This is a consumer packaged good case where the products were largely not bought online but through retailers, making it much more difficult. In the motion for preliminary approval, the administrator had hoped to hit 80%. That was, in fact, in the second round of notice, exceeded at 82% with average 2.5 impressions. What went into the determination of the uh, entities that would become the benefactors of Cypre? I mean, I understand it was it's part of the negotiated settlement, but what what went into 
identifying those and uh, it was a, a, a list put forth and then debate and certain ones weeded out, others added. How, how did that process work? I would say that there was some debate. I think we ended up with um, two originally suggested by the defendant, um, the National Center, the National Consumer Law Center and the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau. Um, and then when it was suggested by the court that perhaps we look into a third, the Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice was added. All of these organizations um, deal with litigation for consumers as well as providing, I think, direct advice to consumers in this situation. So they were thought to approximate the interests of those who had not filed claims. Does the process permit others uh, like the appellants in this case who, who may have interests uh, or the amici in this case to petition or to have some uh, uh, input in the process of the selection? There have been other cases, Your Honor, where organizations petition to be included in that process or to be included as Cypre. We did not have any such petitions in this case. So moving on. What other organizations have received any kind of, oh, excuse me, Judge Kelly, go ahead. Oh, oh, go right ahead. Anyway, hey, what other organizations even know about this? The settlement was publicly announced um, quite prominently, um, and so I would hope well, that- Well, well how, how publicly? Was it shot from the courthouse steps, at, you know, and walked away? How, how do you mean how publicly? Help me. If I can recall, I believe there were uh, cable television notices, there were radio notices in English and in Spanish. It was publicized um, in certain online publications such as Good Housekeeping, Golf Digest, et cetera, as Proceed. well as on- and that's in the record, correct? What you're telling us is clearly in the record. Yes, sir, it's in the record. Percy, and maybe Judge Kelly. Please. I, I have a question that goes back a step to the notice issue and, um, and, and how, what the customer, consumer needs to do once they see notice. In other words, was there any discussion in reference to these other cases, the McCormick case, the Pearson case, where there's more of a direct distribution to the consumer. In other words, it seems to me that there's the issue of notice. Do people know about this? And you've represented that this is a pretty high number, 82% for these kinds of cases. But then the next step seems to me to be once the consumer gets notice, do they have to fill out this whole claim process for $7 or $12? Or is there a way where they can just be reimbursed directly once they're identified? Is that something that was explored in more detail? I think that the issue here is, as I said, that would be very easy to do in something where the defendant held the records and could identify and even give a credit to accounts or something like that. But it would be much more difficult in the consumer package good retail in-store purchasing to identify some number of consumers that are presumably in the class and may not have figured out or wanted to um, file a claim themselves and just send a random percentage money that way. I've not been able to see that done. Counsel, in some te big tax refund cases, they give it to the middle people and require the middle people under penalty going to jail to get it back to the consumers. Was that explored in this circumstance? I think in tax refund cases, I hope if our system is working well, it's quite clear to whom those fees are due, or those sums are due. No, counsel, counsel, now don't blow off the question. It's very serious. I'm sorry, I didn't you, understand. You give it to, no, you give it to, in this case, uh, uh, Walmart, okay? And you tell Walmart, here's this much money. We think it was from your people who bought from you. You can come back to us and account for it. 
and you get it to them. We had no evidence on record, Your Honor, that Walmart actually knows who bought Roundup from them. Well, okay, again, you're dodging the question. No, you didn't consider that, right, at any time? And these classes never consider that, that kind of situation, correct? Uh, it was suggested by the objector to the district court who found it not feasible. Okay, good. Thank you. I did not know that. Thank you, Your Honor. In the issue of unfairness, I would just point out that the district court did make an independent determination that um, a windfall had essentially already been given. Uh, the district court spent two pages of an independent inquiry on what damages were available under the various states' laws and found that 50% of purchase price was well more than was available to the defendants at, or the claimants at trial. Therefore, we already had a windfall. Well, what about the, the claim? I mean, even putting aside the question of whether you can just adopt whole cloth what's in the complaint, but here there's, there is the allegation that I wouldn't have bought this at all had I been told proper or accurate information. Well, we do have to account for the fact that no one disputes that it worked as a weed killer. And so the, plain, or the claimants did receive the value of the weed killer. What we are saying is that this representation meant something to them and they did not receive the value of this representation, which is a different inquiry, Your Honor. And the uh, district court did have access to the expert damages report that had been put together in the Blitz litigation and transferred by agreement to this case as well, which did not value the whole product, but the value of that representation. And uh, I cannot see the clock, but I believe my time is concluding at this point, uh, so I will turn it over. All right, I don't see any questions. Uh, thank you, Ms. Wicklund. Mr. Wilkerson? Uh, actually, I believe Mr. Rosenthal is next, uh, Your Honor. All right. Uh, Your Honor, I'm gonna split my time with, well, not split my time. Mr. Wilkerson is gonna take the First Amendment issue. I'm gonna address the Cypre. And uh, so may it please the court, John Rosenthal from Winston and Strawn from Monsanto. Um, I think I'm gonna spend most of my argu argument here trying to answer some of the questions that the court's already asked here. So I think we'll start out first of all with, with the, the idea of the windfall and what Bank America means. So what Bank America means in terms of is it limited to liquidated damages is not actually supported by the language of Bank America, nor is it nor is it supported by the case from which that language is taken clear, right? What, what Bank America was doing was talking about in a situation where someone was fully compensated, whether or not they have a claim to what remains in the fund. And, and the proposition under Clier here is you have to have an equitable claim in order to have uh, get access to those additional funds here. And uh, if you're fully compensated, you don't have access to those funds. Now, those funds are still the property of the class. And then the question on the ALI standard is what's the next best use? Uh, so here it's a question of compensation. And, and your honors, uh, Judge Kelly, you're abundantly right. And I believe that the states ha have conceded this. You don't look just to the complaint. That'd be preposterous because we have a notice pleading standard. And 80% of the time, there is nothing other than the fact of damage is pled in a complaint. So you have to look at, at the, the course of the case, the, the damage experts, um, and what is actually done during discovery in terms of what full compensation here. And that's exactly uh, what the lower court did here. Spent a lot of time evaluating uh, the claims here. 
And, and in this case, there was expert testimony on both sides of the fence here. The plaintiffs put forward an expert that came between 7 and 15 percent. And we put forward an expert showing actual no damages. If you actually added uh, or took out this, stain, this, this statement from the product, in terms of the conjoint work we did, there actually is no difference. In other words, there's no damages. At worst, our economist estimated uh, damages would be at 2.8%, right? So what we ended up doing here was originally a 10% payment. Uh, and later, because of issues with respect to the amount of claimants, we engaged in a robust notice program where we not only did original notice program, we did a supplemental program and then another program. As part of that, we also escalated the payments from the 10% to the 50% here to attract more claims. That's three times. But, but three Mr. Times. Mr. Rosenthal, under your theory, then, is that a windfall? I mean, if the, if, if the district court had, was going to approve something significantly less than 50%, it's sort of hard to estimate what a windfall then is in, in this particular situation. Uh, Your Honor, I think it's a great question. Uh, I would say it's bordering on a windfall, right? Because we're at multiples here of, of what we believe the actual damages uh, are in the case. See, I'm uh, out of time. John, I, I believe they put three minutes on your clock but I, it was supposed to be seven. So that's your honors. Should I proceed? I'll leave it up to counsel to divide your time. Yeah, I, uh, I think I have three minutes uh, left, uh, actually four minutes left. Um, in any case, your honor, I, I, it is bordering on that. Uh, I, I think at 50%, certainly over 50%, we are in the windfall. Area. And that's the ALI standard here. Uh, that is, at what point uh, does, and it's unfair, and the courts have defined that, including Bank America, at what point unfair becomes a windfall? I think we are certainly bordering on that. Um, uh, turning to, to uh, um, uh, the, the notice here, I, I would point out here the notice was extremely robust, $1.8 million three different notice plans, um, including going out and buying uh, a $200,000 uh, uh, list of emails of likely consumers and notifying them that that way here. The court found- Counsel, let me interrupt you. Does the record reflect how many people you, Monsanto, sold an overwhelming percent of this to? Like the 90% go to a Walmart and uh, two or three other big vendors? I, I don't believe- there's a breakdown specifically, but the, but the, the, the distinct majority of this volume goes to the large uh, uh, box retailers, Your Honor. But I would- Sure, how, how many, when you say large box retailers, how many are there? I would say they're probably five to 10 in the United States. Right, okay, and they probably got an 80 or 90% range, don't you bet? Uh, I don't believe it's anything close to that high. So it not, this is not even a record, not even considered about the people that everybody knew about the whole time, right? Well, it was considered, Your Honor. In fact, uh, Your Honor, uh, if this is almost identical to your case in the Pollard, uh, Pollard case. If you look at the notice plan here and what happened in the Pollard case, it's almost identical in terms of uh, what we did in terms of print, media, uh, direct mail. Uh, the one Counsel, thing I'm, I'm trying to ask a basic question. Yes, sir. Ms. Wickland alluded to that perhaps it was in the record 
about how many of these big box people got an overwhelming percent of the uh, 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 sales of Roundup. Yeah, I, I believe in this in the sales, I don't believe they're broken down by a specific retailer. I would say the majority of the sales went to the big box. Uh, council, majority is 50%. I'm sure it's not 50%. So I take that as rather evasive, but it may not be in the record. Just tell me if it's not the record. I, I, have your to... Honor, I, I do not know whether it was in the record. Okay, I, thank you. I can Enough tell said. you that the court considered whether we should go to those retailers and the court. Yeah, but I thought I was considering whether you want going to get there. You want specific information from them. I thought that was the, the issue and not what percent of the sales went to them. That's correct, Your Honor. But in terms okay, of- Okay, proceed. Go ahead. Um, in terms of, of the notice uh, provision, I would just note that the, 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 the objector is not challenging the adequacy of the notice here. And the adequacy of the notice here for Cypre is no different than under Rule 23. There's no heightened burden here in terms of the adequacy of the notice. And if you look, under the, the abuse of discretion standard, and that's where we are here. The, the district court specifically examined the adequacy of the notice here, considered whether or not, uh, pursuant to the objector's request, um, uh, we should be required to go to these big box retailers. Uh, but the, and the district court said no. That was the district court's discretion. But the district court, consistent with Pollard, also said, it's your, your objector, it's your burden to come forth with something other than just saying you should go as to why that that would be reasonable or cost effective here. And in this instance, the court found that it would not. Um, so, Your Honor, we recognize the side prey is, is large here, um, larger than anybody would like. But the reality here is that side prey is an accepted means within this circuit and, Frank, within every circuit. And while there's been criticism, even at the Supreme Court, even the Supreme Court has endorsed the use of Cypre as an effective mechanism here to perpetuate a public policy of settlements. Here, the district court uh, stringently applied the ALI standards, and we think the district court should be upheld. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel, I have one, one follow-up question, if I could, Chief. Um, Go ahead. Is there been, is there been consideration of making the claims process easier for the individual consumer. In other words, you've got great notice, let's say, and you, you've got 82% that have been notified about the possibility of getting this refund. Has there have, have claims administrators done any work that you know of to, to, to simplify that process? Nobody wants to fill out the refund form, right, and, and, and go through the claims process. And it seems to me that that, seemed, that might be an area where uh, once you've got the notice, you could actually increase the distribution. So, Your Honor, we, we spent a great deal of time um, with the claims administrator. Um, and this is, this isn't, uh, we had the Rawa case as learning. Um, and we spent a great deal of trying, trying to simplify it, including creating an electronic online system with the simplified claims. Uh, part of the problem here, Your Honor, is the nature of these products here, particularly the larger packages, uh, you you could, under the terms of the settlement, actually get significant payments. And our experience in prior cases, including Rawa, which the court noted, is that there is the propensity of fraud here. So um, we have to keep that in mind. There is a significant amount of fraud that goes on in this claimant process. Unfortunately, there are people that troll the internet and look for settlements, particularly where there's almost no or little burden to demonstrate a proof of purchase. 
Um, and when, when we do a number of things with the claims administrator, vet that, we were able to identify that fraud. So we did simplify the process here uh, through this electronic form process. But the, the idea that we should just uh, put out there no proof of purchase and just uh, send people money that, that allegedly we have some evidence they made a purchase, um, we find that that's not going to work in these kinds of consumer cases. Thank you, Mr. Rosenthal. Mr. Wilkerson. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, Jeff Wilkerson, may it please the court. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about the First Amendment arguments in the time that I have. Um, uh, Pellant's arguments that the Cypre aspect of the settlement is compelled speech violating the First Amendment has been rejected by court after court. It fails on two independent grounds, and frankly, it's not a close call. First, the settlement, including its Cypre provisions, is a private agreement. So it cannot constitute the state. Well, counsel, counsel, uh, you know, we say in criminal cases, I know you're not a criminal lawyer, that a challenge by a defense attorney who's resisting the state at every point, a jury challenge is state action. So I have great trouble telling where the state action line is drawn. Well, this, you, the, the state action line is drawn, it was drawn 40 years ago in Bloom v. Uretsky. Oh, counsel, you're, now, 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 of course, your time's up, so we won't, we won't pursue this. Uh, what's, do we have a case of this court on point on your First Amendment? What's our closest case in your short Yeah, time? your closest case on point is the Bloomberg case, Christina A. v. Bloomberg. Thank now, that is not a state action case, but it does go directly to this point about private agreements and the nature of class action settlement. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wilkerson. All right, Mr. Frank, your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the parties are trying to distract the court by talking about the adequacy of the notice under Rule 23E1. And that's a completely different question about whether the distribution was effective under Rule 23E2C2. It's a different clause of 23E, and it's a different standard. It's not mere surplusage. Meeting 23E1 doesn't mean that you've met E2C2, and we know the distribution was not effective here because it did not actually distribute the money to the class. And it's incredibly ironic that the defendants are complaining about the possibility of fraud in a claims process. If you want to get rid of any possibility of fraud, you go to the retailers, as we discuss at pages 30 to 33 of our opening brief, and again in our reply brief, you get the list of customers and you directly mail them a check. And then you can even mail them a check for less than 50% and not even worry about the possibility of a windfall, because then you will get enough class members to Does the record the reflect the real fund. cost of doing that the way you're doing it, or the way you're discussing it at this moment? Is, I, I, I'm sorry, I did not hear that. Okay, now I'll say it again because I fell over too. Does the record reflect the real cost of trying to do that to get down to individual people who have may, may bought just a little bit of Roundup? <laughs> Certainly. And we have in the record what it cost in other cases that were much smaller where it was feasible to do this. Uh, the parties did not try to rebut that with any evidence of their own. The district okay, court- what's your, best, was, what's your best case, sir? What's your best case? McCormick, Pearson, all the cases we cite in pages 30 to 33. All of them. I was asking for the best case. McCormick, then, because... Okay, thank you very much. 
which where where the the subpoena was issued to make the distribution bayer is another good case on that with respect to windfall my friend's argument proves too much because if it's possible to go to the court and say well if we litigated this out the class wouldn't get this much it's just as easy to go to the court and say well if we litigated this out the defense would win even a peppercorn to the class is 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 a windfall and therefore everything should go to cypre and that can't be the answer um the previous cases where this court adopted cypre airline tickets and so on there were no rule 23e challenges rule 23e2c2 did not exist that was implemented in 2018 uh and everybody just accepted okay there's cypre and now we figure out where the cypre goes and nobody complained about it nobody complained that the settlement was unfair nobody asked for class members to get more money so those aren't applicable here and e2c2 says you looked at the effectiveness of the distribution and if the parties choose a distribution that goes to third parties instead of class members they have flunked e2c2 and it doesn't matter if you've satisfied e1 if you flunk e2c2 counsel what 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 authorities can we look to to determine at what point a district court abuses its discretion in making the conclusion that the distribution is is equitable and fair well here the court made a legal error about feasibility it held it was not feasible because it would be duplicative and how could it be duplicative there are 97 of the class that got nothing if you send them checks that's not duplicative the court held uh it's not feasible because then i can't determine uh the buyers who went to small stores and that doesn't answer the question whether you can get some class members in which is better than no class members uh so the feasibility question is a question of law yes the court applied the wrong standard it didn't hold that it was not feasible to do it it held it was not feasible to notify everybody and we agree it's not feasible to notify everybody but this court holds you don't have to notify everybody you don't have to pay everybody it wasn't that everybody got paid in bank america it was a subset of class members who got paid in bank america um so with and and brazenio versus henderson is 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 really on point on this it wasn't a cypre case but it was the same thing where the uh settling parties only got one million to the class and said but we tried really really hard we had all this notice we made the claims process easy we tried really hard to get the money into the class and they just didn't want to take the money and 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 we satisfied e1b and 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 there's no obligation to do a direct distribution and the ninth circuit said you're right there's no obligation to do a direct distribution but e2c2 measures the effectiveness of the distribution and you left money on the table and you can't do that and get this such a disproportionate result now disproportionality is less of an issue here because it, it, it it's uh 10 million versus 12 million as opposed to 7 million versus 1 million but there's still 16 million dollars going to non-class members going to third parties and that is just wrong under bank america it's wrong under baby products it's wrong under e2c2 and we asked the court to reverse settlement approval and send it back down 
holding that the parties have to fulfill their obligations, their fiduciary duties to the class. Thank you, Mr. Frank. Thank and, you. Uh, let me express my appreciation and thanks to all counsel who have appeared in our virtual forum this morning to uh, provide argument and supplementation to the briefing that's been submitted in this case. This is a, um, a difficult issue and difficult uh, factual uh, uh, record to to get through, and we appreciate counsel's assistance in, in doing that argument has been helpful. Um, it's a little clumsier uh, on screen uh, than in our courtroom, and uh, but so we appreciate everyone's uh, helpful participation this morning. Thank you. Counsel may be excused. Thank you, Thank you. Your Honor.